Thank you, Brother John, for the introduction. It is wonderful to be here. I am thankful for the program tonight. Thankful for Mike, the congregation here in Jamesport, Missouri, for hosting the program. And it's wonderful to be with you. Now, we've had a request from Brother Steve Baisden to deliver some lessons to help individuals see where we have been and a little bit about our journey and why we ultimately came to fulfillment and why we changed our mind. And in fact, I have changed my mind. And I'm not ashamed of that at all. I've changed my mind. There's really only two categories of individuals that never change their mind. Fools because they won't, dead men because they can't, and I choose to be in neither of those categories. To say that brothers shouldn't be changing their minds is really to say that they shouldn't be studying. Show me a brother or sister who gives themselves to a dedicated study of the Word of God, you will quickly distance yourself from the majority of opinions of many doctrines. Let me give you a for instance. I remember hearing in a gospel meeting when I was first converted in 1978 a text from Matthew 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. And he referred to the assembly that we were a part of. I heard the phrase used by many Christians in the denominational world. I heard individuals use this text over and over again when anyone would come together to study or to worship or even at a wedding, the wedding song, right? Where two or three are gathered in his name. It was my first year preaching at the Benton Harbor Church of Christ. I'd already graduated from college. Never heard anything different there. And I'm studying church discipline. And so if you're going to study church discipline, one of the passages you're going to really look at carefully is Matthew 18, 15 through 18 particularly. So if your brother trespasses against you, you go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained that brother. But if he neglects to hear you, you take one or two more. Then in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And now we've got two or three in the text. And if they fail to hear them, tell it to the church. If you neglect to hear the church, let him be unto you as a heathen man and a publican. By the way, Jesus ate with publicans. He certainly did. So the eating in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is about the Lord's Supper, not a common meal. Let's go on. So in Matthew 18 and verse 19, Jesus says, Where two or three will agree on anything on earth, it would be done to them. Still the two or three. Now the late night evangelists are coming in and say this is their agreement passage. Matthew 18, 19. So you send in your $100 seed faith. We'll agree and God's going to multiply this 10, 20, 100 times. That's lifting that out of its context, right? Well, so is verse 20. If you apply it without the context. He's not saying that Jesus magically appears 
when the individuals come to study. That's not the idea at all. Jesus is with you if you're with him. Jesus is with us alone or together. So what's the emphasis of Matthew 18? You're settling problems. Somebody has sinned. You're coming to an awareness of the problem. And Jesus says, you remember I'm there. You treat one another fairly. You treat one another according to the teachings of the gospel, you see. You only have a church meeting with a recognition that Jesus is judge. That is the idea. Now, I remember teaching that at the Forest Park Church of Christ when I preached in Atlanta for a few years. The first time the church of 400 ever heard anything like that. And I began to see that just because passages are used a particular way is no guarantee that that's the right application if you're not going to check the context. And so we have learned context is king. Well, I had another lesson that I learned myself about 20 years ago. And this lesson came from reading the Old Testament particularly Genesis chapter 48. Now I had preached lessons from Hebrews 11:21 several times, sometimes in front of elders and sometimes preachers were there at lectureships. I would use this text in a particular way. And in Hebrews 11:21 the Bible speaks about Jacob who while he is dying leans upon his staff and he worships. And he blesses both the sons of Joseph. And so, text seemed clear to me. He's leaning on a staff. He's worshiping. He's dying. So I preached that Jacob must have been going to some familiar place of worship to bless these sons of Joseph while he was dying. And that was a sermon that I used to get people to come to church services. Well, if the guy's dying and he can go over to worship somewhere, you know, you can come to church service. Then I'm studying about 2002, 2003 in my my office at the Lakeshore Church of Christ in South Haven. And I'm reading through Genesis chapter 48. And Jacob's dying, but he's on his bed. I said, wait a minute now, wait a minute. Something's wrong with this picture here, the way that I had interpreted Hebrews 11.21. He's on his bed. He's leaning on the staff of his bed, not his shepherd's staff. He didn't get up and go somewhere to worship. He's dying. And I see the picture of Joseph bringing Ephraim and Manasseh, little children, between his knees. Well, he's on his bed, leaning on his staff, and he's got both his hands on his grandchildren's heads. How is he going to lean on the shepherd's staff? It makes no sense. He's on his bed staff, you see. Now, here's the lesson that I learned. When you have a New Testament text citing an Old Testament event, the presumption is that you know the Old Testament event. But you and I have been trained to believe that the New Testament is somehow separated from the Old Testament. That although you might have a context in the New Testament, and the Old Testament might have some interesting stories, but it's not tied to the interpretation of the Old, and that is false. Without the Old Testament, many passages are left in the dark, and we're going in the wrong direction, as I'm going to demonstrate to you tonight. Now, 
When I went to college in Cookville, Tennessee, Tennessee Bible College, my trustee attended there as well, I studied the book of Revelation. And Bible college is not really a good place to study. It's really not. You take four or five classes, you listen to the instructors, you learn what he says about it, you better write down the right answer. When the tests come, you better give him what he said. All right? I didn't really learn to study the book of Revelation until I got out of Bible college and I began to study the book earnestly when I was going to teach it at, in Benton Harbor, Church of Christ. And so I am studying this book of Revelation with Brother Thomas Eves. Shouldn't really call his name in a negative way, but he taught us the standard 95, 96 AD date dating of the book of Revelation. And he made the argument that the Domitian persecution of 95 and 96 was greater than the Neronian persecution, which would take place in the 60s before the fall of the temple. And so I had to memorize that point, part of my notes. Neronian persecution was, uh, or the Domitian persecution was greater than the Neronian persecution. And that was the party line, so to speak. And then he said, but there is a view from Brother Wallace. And we appreciate Brother Wallace in many ways. He did a great deal of good rooting out premillennialism of the church in the 1930s and 40s. But the sound brethren just don't accept that view. And that's the way he presented it. Wallace's views were very minor. Or the minority held to them and they just didn't accept his views. That in fact... The persecution had to do with the Neronian persecution, that is, while Nero was living. And I don't really think the emphasis is upon Domitian or Nero. It's the emphasis of the Jewish persecution that was taking place before the fall of the temple. But that's another uh, lesson for another time. And as I went out of Bible college and remembering this and I got Wallace's commentary and he was the seedbed for changing my view. I'm going to admit that. I learned from Foy E. Wallace Jr. I certainly did. And he argued from Matthew 24, 21 where Jesus said so then there should be great tribulation such as what not since the beginning of the world to this time no nor shall ever be. Okay? So the greatest persecution that would ever take place, would take place, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21. But Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 34, this generation would not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. So how could there be a greater persecution 20 years later when Jesus said that the greatest persecution that would ever take place would take place in that generation and before the temple fell? And in that context... Jesus said, this gospel will be preached in all the world. So I believe that it is a Jew first emphasis, but not just Jew only. The Gentiles would suffer as well as they came into the kingdom. And many times uh, they would have to help their Jewish counterparts. But Matthew 24 and 21 speaks about an unequal day of tribulation and persecution. Now, we turn to the book of Revelation... In chapter 1 and verse 9, I begin reading. And we find that John is in this tribulation. I, John, 
both your brother and companion, in the tribulation. Do you see the article there? The tribulation. Now, Jesus already told us that the days in that generation would bring forward the greatest tribulation that would ever take place. And it would never happen again like it happened then. Now, John is in that tribulation. He can't be in another tribulation. He's in that tribulation. You see? And because he's in that tribulation, it ought to agree with the tribulation that Jesus speaks about, which is unequaled and unparalleled. Now, later on in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, we find again there's a great crowd that comes out of the great tribulation. Notice here. And I said to him, Sir, you know, so he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And I like the New King James Version because there's an article there. All right? King James says great tribulation. No. The great tribulation. So the greatest tribulation of all time that would never be repeated would take place within that generation. And John was in it, and these came out of the great tribulation. And so how in the world is it the case that someone says that the Domitian persecution is greater than the time during Nero? Well, we find out that there is a quote by a man by the name of Irenaeus in 175 A.D who was quoted by a man by the name of Suspicius, Sulpicius in Erosius, and Augustine, fourth-century men, all quote this text. And it appears that Irenaeus says that John wrote this revelation during the time of Domitian. But Wallace pointed out that Robert Young, who gives us Young's analytical concordance said that Sulpicius and Erosius and others, Augustine actually stupidly misread Domitius Nero for the name of Domitian when it was one of the names of Nero and you begin to think about who these guys Sulpicius and Erosius and Augustine are the state church is forming the Roman Catholic Church is now beginning to form its power. And when you have these councils dictating what to believe, they're the ones we're going to believe, and yet they misread. See, that's the problem with having a central power and authority in a church. Because if the guy at the top is wrong, everybody else is wrong. But if you have independent congregations the way that they ought to be, then every congregation has to study for itself. Then you're responsible, I'm responsible, we're responsible together, and we, and, we, and we study together. And we find that in 1599, there's a man by the name of Caesar Baronius, who is a Catholic archbishop, who's trying to trace the saints. Uh, the, the, the martyred saints all the way to the first century and he gets stuck about the time of Domitian in the 90s. And then he discovers a woman by the name of Domitilla who is killed because of her faith. And when 
he reads and studies about Domitian, he sees this tyrant who's killing people, and this one woman is killed because of her faith, and he concludes in 1599 that that is a greater persecution than the Neronian persecution, and he's got the quote from Irenaeus, which is misread by Sulpicius, Erosius, and Augustine. And as we do more research into this woman named Domitilla, that the Catholic Church says is a martyred saint, and she's become a saint. You can pray through her. Domitilla. She is one of the mediators now, because the state church says so. But you do a little more research and you find out that the Jews in the 90s said that she was a Jew. She lost her life for faith in God, that's true, but she was a Jewish, not a Christian. So the entire religious doctrine is based upon the presumption of powerful men who misread things. You think the Roman Catholic Church has ever gotten it wrong on any doctrine? Yeah, I think so. Here's the thing. We have been influenced by the Roman Catholic Church. Do you know our brother Kyle Pope down in uh, Amarillo, Texas? Yes. That he cited Irenaeus in his book affirming the 95-96 AD theory of the book of Revelation. He's citing the Catholic line of argumentation. He doesn't even know it. And it's sad. So, I begin now to change my mind on the book of Revelation. In 1986 or 7, somewhere along there, I teach the early date from the book of Revelation. And I begin to see that the focus is on the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Wallace is making some good arguments. If the book is written after 70 AD, why is there this problem with the Judaizers? Those who say that they are Jews and are not. Why is there a problem with Judaizers if this is AD 70? There wouldn't have been any, you see. The Judaizers would have believed that the temple was going to stand and they are all destroyed in AD 70. So how are they affecting the church, you see? That's not going to work. He makes a good argument. All right. So I begin to see that the focus is the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And I think that Wallace is correct. But I don't know about this thousand year reign kind of a thing. Wallace says there is no millennium. You have premillennial, right? Postmillennial. He says there's no millennium, and therefore this ah-millennial view, and brethren don't even know what it's called, they just they don't, no, it's just a figurative time. However, most brethren don't believe what Wallace believed. He believed it referred to a very small time. And most brethren today believe it just represents the gospel dispensation. And at the end, it's going to get very, very, very wicked. And then Jesus is going to return. So Wallace has this view, and I'm studying this, and I'm absolutely convinced now that the bulk of the book is about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. So I teach this at the Benton Harbor Church of Christ. Later, I would be hired as an instructor 
at Tennessee Bible College. I was assistant to the president there, serving Brother Malcolm Hill and serving with the staff. And I taught the book of Revelation and the early day. And I took the view that the focus is the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. One of the instructors and the Bible class teachers of the Northeast Church of Christ, Brother Paul Wilmoth, had just taken the late date, taught it to the class. I disagreed. I was gone a lot, but I disagreed. And he came to my class on the book of Revelation, and he changed his understanding, changed his view that the focus is the fall of the temple. And again, that leaves me with this thousand-year reign problem, okay? How does thousand refer to a short period of time? Well, I taught the book at Tennessee Bible College, and then I taught the book again at the Lakeshore Church of Christ in the early 2000s, and then I taught it again about 10 years later. So about 2002... And then about 2012 and 13. Now my fourth time through the book, I got my notes. They're getting copious. I'm convinced this is all about the fall of the temple. And I'm beginning to see what Wallace said, that it's all fulfilled. But if it's all fulfilled, I ask myself this question. How can there be a greater revelation outside of the revelation? Now a lot of preachers in the church believe that. Bill Lockwood, I've debated a couple of times. We were supposed to have a debate this weekend. Bill, unfortunately, suffered a stroke. He said uh, he won't be able to debate this year. I wish him no ill will. And maybe we can debate next year. But I asked him on the phone, and he said it was all fulfilled. Some of you were in Ludington when he shocked us by saying publicly, remember that? The book of Revelation is fulfilled. So I asked him over the phone, I said, how can there be a greater revelation outside of the revelation? He said, that's what the Bible teaches. Now think about that. The book of Revelation is the goal. It's the revealing of Christ. It's about his second coming. That's what it's about. But he believed it's all fulfilled. And yet there's a greater revelation outside of the revelation. His trouble is 1 Corinthians 15, just like it was for me. Now, When I was in the third debate with Bill Lockwood, I bring up the fact if it's all fulfilled, then you are with us in 1 Corinthians 15 because death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20. And what he said was pretty telling. He got up and said, well, not all the details. So it's all fulfilled, but not all the details. You know, when you fulfill something, like Jacob was supposed to fulfill his week with Leah. You remember that? He fulfilled his obligation and Laban says, oh no, you haven't fulfilled it really, you see. See, Laban's the underhanded man there. Now, Jacob had deceived, he's being deceived. Okay, He's, getting, he's reaping what he has sown. But I'm going to talk about the idea of fulfillment. Okay, Jacob had fulfilled what he said he would do. It's Laban who didn't believe in the fulfillment. If you pay on a mortgage... And you fulfill the mortgage. You've paid your house off. The bank can't come back and say, well, there's a few more details. You need to now 
really have a second fulfillment. We're going to give you another 30 years of fulfillment. That's ridiculous. Okay? It's ridiculous. And Wesley Simons, who is the preacher for the uh, Church of Christ in East Tennessee. He is the director of the Tri-City Schools of Preaching. I asked him to engage me in a public debate, which he refused. He said, at polishing the pulpit in Churches of Christ, this is a big program, mainline, you know, institutional churches, probably four or five hundred people there. He is dictating to them, and he said, it's all fulfilled. And so he's the director of the School of Preaching, so I call him up. And I said, Wesley, you said the entirety of the book of Revelation was fulfilled. He said, yes. I said, well, what about death in Hades? Well, not all the details. You see, brethren say things who are in the limelight. And others hear them and they follow the party line. I'm telling you, I know that happens. I went to a church service in East Tennessee a few years ago. And I asked, he was... He had referred to the book of Revelation, so I, I raised my hand. And it was um, a passage, I think, from Revelation chapter 16, I think, or 6. I can't remember what it was. Anyways, we're, we're talking about that. And I said, well, this took place, you know, at the time of the fall of the temple. And he said, listen, the book of Revelation is fulfilled. It's fulfilled. I know three weeks earlier he had gone to the polishing the pulpit. Listen to Wesley Simons. He's the director of the School of Preaching, the Tri-City School of Preaching. And he said, everything is fulfilled. Now these brethren are following the party line. But they haven't read through the book of Revelation and haven't studied it. Or they have to come up and say, well, not all the details. All right, then which details are fulfilled and which issue and which are not, you see. I would later learn that the Bible already gives us the information that all of it's fulfilled and all the details are fulfilled as well. All right? And we will learn this in the time statements in the text. So we're going to notice Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And then we're going to go into Revelation chapter 2, 22 in just a minute. Now notice, when the Bible was first written, there were no chapter and verse distinctions as we read them today. The chapter distinctions come from Stephen Langdon, Archbishop of Canterbury in 1227 AD. So for 1200 years, there's no chapter distinctions. Why do you suppose that's the case? No one had an idea of dividing the text before that? Sure they did. They resisted it because they knew once you started to divide the scriptures into chapters and then verses, Verses could be lifted out of their context more easily. You could cite the passage without respecting the text. Isn't it interesting the way that Jesus cites the scripture? Isaiah said, expects you to know the context, you see. And so, there are no chapter-verse distinctions. Well, how would they know the subjects? How would you know when to stop, when to start? Well, the ancients would have these literary markers. We call them inclusios today. But all that means is, it's a Latin term which means a bracket or an envelope, right? That a writer would start with an event and then end with an event and everything is about the same subject. And there are inclusios all over the Bible if you'll look for them. You want to know what a book is about? Read the first chapter and the last chapter. 
That's really what the book is about. First chapter of the book of Mark, there's the baptism of John. Last chapter of the book of Mark, the baptism of the Great Commission. What's the book about? God's history of his people from the baptism of John, transitioning to the Great Commission, you see. They're all over the Bible. All right? In the Revelation, we find the time indicator, these things which must shortly take place. He said and signified by his angel to his servant John. So again, he tells us in the very onset of the book, these things would shortly take place. I say, all right? Let's keep on reading. Verse Revelation 1 2. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near and goo, sometimes the time is at hand. Now I want you to notice the singular way he looks about the book is the prophecy. All right? The words of this prophecy. All right? It's one revealing, one second coming of Christ. There are not many comings of Christ spoken about in the book of Revelation. Some of our brethren have argued that there are these conditional comings. If you don't repent, you know, I'm going to take your, I'm going to come and take your light away. Well, if they repented, he would come and grant them salvation. He was still coming. One way or another, he was coming. That's the idea. And this nonsense that our brethren have put forward really comes because somebody said it and repeated it, who repeated it, who repeated it, and they haven't really looked deeply into the text. Now, the time is near. Now, that's how the book is introduced. Now we're going to go to the end of the book. Okay? And so there are no chapter-verse distinctions in the first century. The Old Testament books are not chapters and verses, although... There's a little more symmetry uh, to those. But I want you to notice now in Revelation chapter 22, beginning in verse 6, where John ends the book. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants things which must surely take place. Now, he starts the book that way. He ends the book that way. This is the guarantee that the entirety of the book is of the same context. The same message. All of it and everything in between is about to transpire. The time is near. It's going to shortly take place, type saying. All right. Behold, verse 7, I am coming quickly. So we had men like Wayne Jackson. He says, when he comes, he's going to come fast. So he come 2,000 years later, 3,000 years later, 4,000 years later, and yet the saints were in a tribulation. All right? Suppose your house is on fire, and you call the fire department, and they said, we're coming quickly. But your house burns down, you know, you build another one up, there's an earthquake, that one's demolished. You build another one up, 40 generations, here comes the fire department, running down the road. I told you, when we come, we come quickly. How foolish is that? And that's the kind of exegesis that our brethren have been guilty of. Look, I don't laud in this kind of a thing. It's just that it doesn't make sense. And Wallace, who was viewed as the crackpot, was way, way closer to the truth than this 95-96 AD theory, and that's what it is. Now notice, please, verse 
8, Revelation 22. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. When I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Verse 9. He said to me, see that you do uh, that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and your brethren the prophets. Uh, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Now verse 10, please. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. The time is near. At hand. He starts that way. He ends the book. That's the guarantee that the way that he started, the way he ends, that everything in between was near and at hand and about to transpire. That's the force of the meaning of this text. Now, in 2014, when my conscience was bearing on me, I had come to the conclusion Jesus returned. Matter of fact, I was pretty sure he wasn't coming back for... 20, 30 years. I mean, I was in and out, not understanding all the details. But whenever I heard somebody talk about the second coming of Christ, Jesus is coming, and usually it's denominational preachers, I said, you know what? If the whole world believes something, it's probably not right. You ever have that thought? You know? I mean, (laughs) where two or three are gathered together, what does the whole world believe about Matthew 18, 20? And the whole religious world is wrong about Matthew 18, 20. I'm sorry. It's not my fault. I studied the context. And, and we need to be you know, careful with the overall context of the scripture as well. And so we find this at hand statement, right? Don't seal the book. Daniel said, seal the book. It's for uh, many days. But don't seal the book for the times at hand. That's the guarantee that everything in between is about to transpire. All right. Now, in my fourth time of teaching the book of Revelation, I noticed the pattern of the seven seals and the seven trumps and the seven plagues. Took me a while. I wish I'd understand that earlier, but I didn't. But now I was getting it. This is Hebrew parallelism. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven plagues. It's the retelling of the same event for emphasis and the guarantee that everything's about to take place. You remember when Pharaoh had the dream. And he he dreamt of seven fat ears of corn being devoured by seven lean ears of corn and seven fat cows being devoured by the seven lean cows. Well, Joseph will come and Genesis 41, 25, he will say to Pharaoh, the dreams, they are one. And God is showing Pharaoh what he is about to do. Let's notice here. The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. I made this argument with Daniel Denham in our first debate, and Gary Summers said the only problem here, the book of Revelation doesn't actually say that. Let's see if it does. When you pronounce the book of Revelation, you should not put an S on the Revelation. You shouldn't pronounce it Revelations. Why? It's one. The revealing of Christ, you see. The seven seals and the seven trumpets 
and the seven plagues are the guarantee that God was showing John what he was about to do. I believe that the book of Revelation is written in 62 AD. There's actually a Syrian Aramaic manuscript with that date on it. You add 7 to 62, you've got the 69th year. And there's something about a 69th week in the book of Daniel. I don't take the party line there even among preterists. I don't believe he's talking from Daniel and counting 500 years. That's not my view. In Isaiah 23 and verse 15, the Bible says the days of the king are 70 years. That prophecy, in my view, is about the Messiah who is coming. And Christ, who was baptized at 30, would come within a generation 70. I believe the 70 weeks refer to the time of the Messiah's birth to the time of the destruction of the temple. And in the 69th week, he's cut off, but not for himself. And at that time, the evangelism stopped. The difficulty of the age collapsed upon the ancient world. The Jews were punished. Jesus returned. The resurrection of the dead saints out of Hades took place. And when the last stone of the temple was dismantled, the end came and resurrection took place. That's my view. And I think as we look to see how these ideas are used in Scripture, that is a consistent way that it's used. And those are my views, and I think they fit with the context. Now, as you're looking at the book of Revelation, you have a seventh seal and a seventh trump and a seventh plague. All right? This, again, is Hebrew parallelism. So the seventh seal is parallel to the seventh trump. And the seventh trump is parallel to the seventh plague. And if you want to know what's going on in these seven trumpets, and by the way, let me stop here, and I listened to uh, a lesson by B.J. Clark of the Memphis School of Preaching a few years ago about the second coming of Christ. We were influencing people, so he had to mount the pulpit to refute this. When the last trumpet comes, it's going to be a supersonic trumpet hall heard all over the world. It will be deafening. Okay? All right. That's the last trump, he says. Are there seven trumpets in the book of Revelation? How are this first sixth heard? Did he hire Kenny G? Right? He had his trumpet there. No, no. The trumpets were symbols representing events that they could clearly see in those last seven years, from 62 to 69. And so it would get closer and closer and closer. Remember like the days of Noah? Did Noah know to get into the ark seven days ahead of time in Genesis 7? I'm pretty sure he did. So it's going to be like the days of Noah. All right. So in the... Seven days ahead of time, the next day would have been six, the next day would have been five, the next day would have been four. I think Noah could count pretty good, right? He knew full well when the flood was coming. And they knew full well that the second coming of Christ was very, 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 very near when these events would transpire in the ancient world. Now, for me personally, the seventh trump is important. Because in Revelation chapter 11, there is the sounding of the seventh trump. So I want you to notice in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15, 
something takes place here. And you will find that the Bible mentions two or three witnesses over and over again. In the Old Testament, you have to have two or three witnesses for every capital offense. You know, the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is going to be established in Matthew 18. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 13, you know, two or three witnesses. Two or three. There's no such thing as a doctrine that sits isolated from another. You will have the corroboration of the event by two or three witnesses. So that scripture will be corroborated somewhere else. Okay? Now, here is the seventh angel sounded. That's the last trump. Okay, there's only seven. In Hebraic counting, if there's another one, the eighth, that's not the last, would be the first. The eighth day of John 20, 25 and 26 is the first day of the week. The eighth, it starts all over again. Circumcision is on the eighth day because it was a day of renewal. You begin, you see. The last, the seventh in the Hebraic counting, that's the Sabbath, that's the last, the seventh, okay? Now, the seventh angel sounded, that's the last trump. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Well, Luke one thirty three says you'll reign forever and ever. Don't go there yet. Um, but here we have that idea already corroborated. And Daniel said he's going to establish a kingdom that would never be destroyed. And in my view, he's not talking about the day of Pentecost. He's talking about the consummation of the kingdom. Now, since I know the Bible does not teach isolated texts, and he's talking about the last trump and a kingdom being established, then I want to find some other texts that corroborate this idea. All right? So notice, we're going to go back and forward. We're going to come back to Revelation 11 in just a moment. So in Luke chapter 21 and verse 31. Did you know in Luke 21, 31 is the only time that Jesus put the kingdom with a specific event? And he's talking about when the Gentiles are going to trample Jerusalem. So I want you to notice that here when he speaks about earlier how the temple is going to be dismantled, not a stone would be left standing there. And everyone that I know of in Churches of Christ believe this is the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. However, they make all kinds of explanations about this word kingdom here. Right? So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Now, when Jesus spoke about the kingdom, and there are many parables about the kingdom, there's many teachings about the kingdom, there's only one time that Jesus spoke about the kingdom with a specific event right here. And yet there are other passages which are talking about the same matter. Revelation eleven fifteen: the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God, you see. It's the same thing. How do I know? Let's go back up to Revelation 11, verse 1, and we'll look at the context. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood and said, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. And so you have a measuring of the temple of God. Now, I know some views out there, this is... You know, measuring to build. I'm sorry. I don't think that fits at all. When Amos had a plumb line, the line was to measure and to judge and to destroy. This temple was going to be judged. Now Matthew contains the Olivet Discourse. Mark contains the Olivet Discourse. 
Luke contains the Olivet Discourse. The Gospel of John does not contain the Olivet Discourse because the book of Revelation is his Olivet Discourse. That's exactly what he's saying. And there's a temple that's going to be destroyed at the seventh trump and the kingdom's coming. All right? Now notice. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city under foot 42 months. We're not going to go to other places, but in Luke, Luke 21, 24, the Gentiles are going to tread the city until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The time of the Gentiles are three and a half years. We're not in the time of the Gentiles. There is no Gentiles to the Jew or Gentile. We're just in the Christian age. That Jew-Gentile distinction was till the fall of the temple. Now no, it's 42 months. Daniel speaks about a times, times and a half a time. We're talking about a three and a half year period. 66 and a half to 70. That's my, my view. I can't have uh, a lot of time to exegete the passage and prove what I'm saying. These are my convictions. I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. That's the first part of the seven-year period because their bodies are going to be lined in the street for the second three-and-a-half-year period. And my the two witnesses, I believe, are Peter and Paul. Why do I believe that? Because it's impossible for a prophet to uh, be, to perish outside of Jerusalem. Luke thirteen thirty-three. The party line. The consensus among the scholars is that Paul was killed by Nero. He was released. He got arrested again. He died at Rome. I don't believe that. Not for a moment. You go and follow Paul. And he tells the Colossians that he's going to see them. He says to Philemon, while he's in prison, make a place for me to stay. He is going back, if you'll check the root of Paul in a familiar route back to Jerusalem. I believe he's going to fill up the measure. I believe Peter and Paul are going to be killed. They're not going to get a proper burial. And then in the last last three and a half year period, uh, the measure is going to be filled up and judgment was coming on the old covenant people. Remember, Jesus said, fill up the measure of your father's guilt. And that's exactly what they did. All right, let's go on to verse 3. I will give power to my two witnesses. It will prophesy 1,260 days, close in sackcloth. Uh, these are the two olive trees, the two lampstands, standing before the God of the earth. I believe one is for the circumcision, one is for the uncircumcision, and that's the witness that soon the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdom of our God. Both Jew and Gentiles would be meshed into one body, and that distinction of Jew and Gentile would be over because the law would come to an end. All right, now please, uh, verse uh, uh, 5, um, go, go right to verse 8 so we can... I'm already five to the... Are you guys okay with me to go for a while here? I don't want... All right, thank you. All right. Um, I can... I got a battery that can go for a while here. So. All right. So now notice, they're dead bodies. Those are the two witnesses. Well, I am the the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. It's amazing how many brethren will say, well, that's not Jerusalem. It is impossible that a prophet perish outside of Jerusalem. Of course Jesus was crucified in the city of Jerusalem. And the focus is the city of Jerusalem. And it's spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Now Rome was never spiritually called Sodom. Rome was never called spiritually Egypt. And yet Moses said, Deuteronomy 32, 32, it would be Sodom in the last days. And now they're like Egypt. You remember in Galatians chapter 4, Paul used the allegory of Abraham had two sons. Isaac and Ishmael, and if they went to Ishmael, they went to Egypt to Hagar. That's what it was, back to Egypt. 
Alright? And so, he is calling them. Israel was a child. Uh, when Israel was a child, I loved him. He called my son out of Egypt. That's applied to Christ, but Christ is calling his people out of Egypt. And here, it's Jerusalem, and it's the law. They're under bondage. And they are both ruled by a tyrant. Egypt was ruled by Pharaoh, and spiritual Egypt was ruled by the high priest. And Jesus said he was coming in the clouds. And he was going to come on the right hand of power, and he would see him. And then remember, the, the high priest rents his garment because he's quoted from Daniel 7. And that's another lesson as well. But now notice, please, back to Revelation chapter 11, verse 12. These are to the witnesses now. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. Who? The witnesses. Wait a minute now. Peter and Paul, seven trump. Does that sound like 1 Corinthians 15, 52? And at the last trump, the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible. You see, this is the seventh trump. 1 Corinthians 15 is the same thing. And I had to recalculate 1 Corinthians 15. And I think I called up Steve and told him, I'm having trouble with 1 Corinthians 15. Because in fact, what we have going on in Revelation chapter 11 is 1 Corinthians 15. And so we come up here. Give me Revelation 11 17, please. Now notice. We give you thanks, O Lord, the one who is, who was, who is to come, because you have taken great power and reign. The nations were angry, your wrath has come, the time of the dead that they should be judged. At the seventh trump, the witnesses are supposed to come up. This is the last trump. The city of Jerusalem falls, the last stone is dismantled. Peter and Paul get resurrection, and notice what he says. He says the time of the dead that they should be judged. This is the judgment of the dead. And they are in Hades. He's not talking about biological bodies. No. They're in the Hadean world. They're saying they're going to be just. Alright. Um, keep on going to verse 19, please. And the temple of God was opened in heaven. You see this? That's what God did. You see, God doesn't have to bring an end to the physical world to obtain His purposes. He just had to bring an end to a world that couldn't open heaven. That's the purpose of God. To open heaven. And that's what the book of Revelation is about. And at the seventh trump, heaven is opened. And the witnesses come up for resurrection. And the time of the dead. That's the great judgment took place at that time. I was talking to a young man. He preaches uh, intermittently at a congregation up north. He's had a pretty good attitude. I don't want to cast dispersion. I'm talking to him about the concept of judgment. He said, I... He said, I think people are running from the concept of judgment. And he was kind of making a, you know, a backhanded point to me. I said, okay. I said, will God reveal more information that's in this Bible today? He said, no. Then why does God have to have some future time to tell you about a judgment when... If this is all the information you get, how come when you die you don't know exactly what happened to you? Huh? From a, from a practical point of view, why not? <laughs> you know, the Bible says if we judge ourselves, we should not be judged. If I'm in Christ, I'm forgiven, right? Walk in the light as he is in the light. And the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin, alright? So that's Revelation chapter 11. Now, now. 
Fourth time teaching the book of Revelation. I'm thinking about this thing. Maybe that's the last trump of 1 Corinthians 15, 52. Seventh trump. Real quick, let me go to the seventh seal. So then the seventh seal has to line up with the seventh trump. And the seventh trump has to line up with the seventh plague. Well, what happens at the seventh seal? Well, let's look at Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1. So when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. I remember some preacher coming to Tennessee Bible College and he said, I know that women will not be in heaven for at least 30 minutes. And we said, why? Because there's silence in heaven for about half an hour. And everybody laughed, right? The problem is, the problem is, that's how preachers deal with verses like that. They just make jokes out of it, right? You don't really get any understanding and exegesis from this text. Now, the seventh seal. And there's silence. Why? Why is there silence at the seventh seal which takes place at the seventh trump, will take place at the seventh plague. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God's in his holy temple now. It was built over 40 years by the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. It's sanctified and it's cleansed. It's completed and it's now fitting for the Lord's own presence. And the Father and the Son would give their presence to this church, which you and I enjoy in a completed church today. Now, as the old country preacher said, and I don't want to be arrogant about this, but that's not nearly it. That's it. Now, let's go on to the seventh plague. What's going to happen at the seventh plague in Revelation chapter 16? Well, first of all, in verse 15, he's coming as a thief. How many thieves coming are there in the Bible? This is the second coming. He's coming as a thief, right? Someone says, well, he's coming in the city of Jerusalem, but then he's going to come as a thief at the end of time, Matthew 24. No, no, there's no division in the Olivet Discourse. My book goes on to prove that. But now notice, please, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple and heaven to the throne saying, it is done. All right? So you've got the seventh seal, God's presence in there. You got the seventh trumpet. You got resurrection. You got the seventh plague and a judgment in the air, and it's done. Now, who's ruling the air at the time that Paul writes to the Ephesians? That's right. The prince and the power of the air. I don't think he's talking about air that we breathe, I think he's talking about the air of a domain. Satan ruling the air, the domain, the spiritual domain. He's the accuser of the brethren. Why? Because the law is still operating. That's why. The law is still operating. Now, in Romans 16 verse 20, the Bible says that Satan was shortly to be crushed. From the Greek word sontribo. It's the same word used when the alabaster box was crushed in Mark chapter 14 and verse 3. He will crush your feet under your feet shortly. The promise of Genesis 3.15 is now coming to pass. Alright? Now if you 
have a prince in power of the air, you think anybody had to get on a house stop to meet Satan in the air? You didn't have to get catapulted in order to meet Satan in the air? You sure? Now, oh, he's going to go see Satan today. Satan's in the air. He's going to jump off that mountain. That's not what that meant, right? No. But he's crushed. And the heir of the domain is not overcome by the presence of Christ in the kingdom of God. In the very place that Satan ruled because the law could not bring forgiveness. Jesus rules where we've met him in the air. Now the hyperbole might seem extravagant to you. But I'm convinced that's exactly what Paul meant in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's the heir of the domain, you see. And those who are still looking for a future return of Christ in churches of Christ, they don't want to hear this, but they are affirming Pentecostalism. Because you need the greatest miracle of all time to take place in order for the second coming of Christ to take place. But I thought that the miracles lasted for 40 years. You see, you can't have it both ways. Either you believe that the miracles have come to an end, which is my position, and I believe in strong providence, don't get me wrong, but God never does more than he needs to do in order to obtain his purposes. He never does more than he needs to do. He never does less than he needs to do. And I suggest to you, he doesn't have to bring an end to the physical world in order to obtain his purposes. He doesn't. Well, Brother Hoger, this evil world, why, the Ukraine... Uh, war, Russia, you got the liberals taking over. It's just awful. Oh, we're going to melt. If someone obeys the gospel this week, that person is added to the kingdom. There's rejoicing, the Bible says, by the angels in heaven, right? I still believe that principle is true. I think God views the world from a spiritual standpoint. Stand uh, point first. And as the kingdom increases, it might be wicked all around us. I'm not going to deny that, but I think it was pretty wicked in Germany in World War II. My dad fought for the wrong side of the German uh, war. He was uh, in the Navy. After the war, he figured out he was wrong. Russians came in, took East, uh, uh, East Berlin. He snuck out before they Built the wall, borrowed the money, flew to the United States, and A. Crow for about 15 years, a German who realized he's on the wrong side of the war. All right? Now, you're not going to convince the Germans in World War II that that wasn't the most evil thing you could possibly go through, the Hitler regime. All right? But I'm telling you, God has a different perspective. God's interested in our souls. So it might be mayhem in the physical world, but in the spiritual world, if people are being added to the kingdom. I'm telling you, God says that's more important. And let's just say for a moment, for the sake of the argument, that Jesus is coming back, which he is not. He's already returned. But suppose he is. Suppose he comes back tonight, but someone obeys but someone would have obeyed the gospel tomorrow. Now, if you have family members or your friends who obeyed the gospel, you'd be pretty happy that Jesus didn't return, right? Oh, I'm thankful for that, you know. Well, what if someone obeys the gospel next week? 
or the week after that. And doesn't the Bible say, and of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end in Isaiah 9 7? And will he not reign forever and ever in Luke 1 33? And let's end with Revelation 11 15 again. Notice what he says. And then the seventh angel sounded, that's the last one. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. At that point, the covenant's finished. The resurrection took place. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Not a miracle at the end of time. The physical change at the end of time, a spiritual change at the time of the end. In which heaven was opened, and we are now changed in covenant to where if you're in Christ, you can never die. Now that's the best news I've ever come up with. With Jesus, I'm in the kingdom, and I will never die. And I'm in the presence of God now, and when I transition, I'm just going to realize a little bit more about the details. Maybe, maybe correct some of some stuff I said here. I don't think so, but um, it's really a wonderful, wonderful journey. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that God has allowed me the opportunity to study. And then, now let me give you one point here. One of the re- <laughs> right before I decided to teach this publicly, and I was challenged by a preacher who I was sharing these things with. But about a month before I taught in 2014, for the first time, that Jesus returned in the fall of the temple. No future coming, not a type, and he is here. The resurrection took place. I am uh, discussing this with uh, a guy uh, across across town, and I decide to go look at a lectureship. Okay, he's giving me some arguments. I said, let me just let me just go listen to a bunch of Church of Christ preachers. So there's a lectureship in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Sound brethren in the institutional church. Okay. They did a lectureship on the Olivet Discourse. And I listened to the lectureship, most of the lessons. It was one of the worst attempts at exegesis I had ever listened to. They contradicted themselves coming and going. They didn't ever see the contradictions from Matthew 24, 28, the carcass. And the body of Luke 17, 37, where the eagles are gathered together, where the carcasses the eagles are gathered together, it's the same figure. They made such a mess of that lectureship that I asked myself this question. Hoker, what are you worried or concerned about? Brethren who don't even study, who come to refute fulfillment, haven't looked at the text, analyzed the text, don't know the Old Testament text was connected to that. Just go and teach the truth. Now, I prayed a great deal before I preached the truth that day. You see, for me, I knew it would mean separation from some of the mainline brethren that I know. I was close to brethren, okay? I used to hold 12, 13 gospel meetings a year. I've been all over the brotherhood. I've been at lectureships. And I knew this would be kind of the end of that. And I feared that. And I asked myself, Holger, what do you love? Do you love the praise of men or do you want, do you want the praise of God? 
And if it's true, just preach it. Just, just do what's right. God will take care of you. Preacher in the next uh, town sent letters to every member of the congregation that I was a heretic. I lost, in two weeks from there, I lost half the congregation. Thought I was going to have to get a secular job. But the ones that stayed, we had about 70 at that time. We left for about 35, 30, something like that. And some people left after that. But those who stayed doubled their contributions. And we have a greater contribution now with 30 people than we had with 70 back then. And we have individuals who have supported the truth. God has blessed me richly. I'm thankful for my brothers. I'm thankful for each of you. Because I know you've gone through a similar journey. You've had courage. I know you've had courage. Because it's not an easy thing to separate yourself from brothers that you've been around a long, long, long time. It's not an easy thing to stand up when you know you're going to be called a heretic. But just like Roy, who figured out the truth. John, you knew it was true, right? Brent knew it was true. Mike knew it was true, right? You guys knew it is true. Um, Bobby, you knew it was true. Mario knew it was true. And when you know it's true, that's where we need men in the kingdom who will stand up and speak out and teach the truth that people can see these things. Because we're the ones who are reasonable with Scripture. We're the ones who have the argument of Scripture. We're the ones putting the Old and New Testaments together. We're the ones relying on God. And we're trusting the time indicators in the text. God bless you. Thank you for your kind attention.